0: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. You're taught to make them forget. I and mean, that's the only way you move into the leadership spaces. I didn't do it saying, hey, man, I'm the black neurosurgeon here. I did it by doing the things that everybody else does to keep my head down. But it just felt like it was time to start talking. And honestly, maybe I could have talked about race earlier and it might have hurt me a little But I might have done okay. But as a undergrad student, I was outspoken and I I did say things, but I knew what I needed to do to get to medical school and to get into residency and residency in particular. I did not say a lot about race. Neurosurgery is a very conservative field. It's a very white field, very male as well and older. It's very slow to change. There's not a lot of neurosurgeons made every year. And so there's not a lot of young black people running around talking about how their experience is like and how it's, it's different from everyone else. My name is Aja Indo, and I'm a modern minority.
1: Welcome to Modern Minorities.
0: This is a show
2: about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different.
1: I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese American girl born and raised in New York City.
2: And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Prominent neurosurgeon and researcher, but he also runs physicians for criminal justice reform, which is a really great organization. If you're interested to learn more, I would highly recommend Googling it to hit their website and see where you can help out. But more than anything, he is such a cool nerd.
1: Yeah, you guys were you guys were nerding out on all sorts of things that I had no idea about. <laughs> Video games and comic books and things like that. Mispronounced names. <laughs> Mispronounced names. All of the things.
2: Uh, I am no neurosurgeon though. Uh... No,
1: no. And it was kind of interesting to hear about how a neurosurgeon thinks about neurosurgeons, you know, because there is that whole stereotype of neurosurgery being super, you know, super complicated and super hard. He actually mentions a video called...
2: It's not brain surgery. It's not
1: brain surgery. So I need to I need to watch that.
2: You know, a lot of people wonder, how do we meet some of these folks? Well, one of our past podcast guests, Dr. Nzinga Harrison from the In Recovery podcast, mm-hmm. we had such a great conversation with her. And we asked, like, are there more people like you out there? <laughs> like, super woke <laughs> physicians who really want to talk about the intersection of medicine and race. And, you know, I, I think they knew each other during their time at Penn. And was a mentor of his. They did their residency together. And while they're very different people, there is a common thread. And the thing that he says later on in our conversation is why he does the work that he does beyond Mm -hmm. just being a neurosurgeon, beyond just being a dad. And it's like, because no one's doing it and it has to be done. And that really kind of rings true to there's problems. And if you're not doing something about it, no one else is going to do it for you or for us.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: And we really get into that towards the end after we talk about like his life in Ghana and his bad taste
1: in video games, et <laughs> <laughs> And it was a, it was a really great talk. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy it.
2: Hey, thank you so much for coming on the pod. How are you doing today? Good. Good. Happy to do it. Yeah. I've been excited about having this conversation with you for a while since our old friend Nzinga introduced us. I guess A lot of people know you, the prominent neurosurgeon in Atlanta, but I guess what they might not know is who you were before all of that started. Can you tell us a story from growing up?
0: Gosh, yeah. I grew up in a few different places. One of the stories that my mom loves to tell, well, she likes to tell two stories about my future. One is when I was born, so I don't actually remember that story, but she says that when I was born that the obstetrician looked at my fingers and said that they were so thin and long that i would be one of two things, either a pianist or a surgeon. And he got 50%, so you're not too bad on that one. And then the other one she likes to tell is that I was in the pediatrician's office and I was looking around and they were about to listen to my heart. And I was like, oh, look, that's a stethoscope. And they was like, oh, very good. And there was some other instrument in in the the room that I think I also named. And so I looked up to my mom and I said, look, mom, I'm practically a doctor. And and so she loves to tell that about my prescient skills on on thinking of what I was going to do in the future.
1: You know what? That's a really good mom strategy. Because as someone (laughs) whose parents wanted me to be a doctor, and like my mom would just always tell me that when I grew up, I would have to be a doctor. Uh Telling stories like that, I can see how That may have definitely been much more effective. Kind of like she didn't tell you 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 needed to be a doctor at all. She was just telling you that the people around you expected you to be one. The
0: universe, (laughs) the universe was conspiring. You had no choice in this. Yes. Well, I'm Catholic. So Catholic guilt is a very big part of the whole
1: thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty funny. So I get asked this question a lot, and I'm going to ask it to you too. Where are you from, Aja?
0: Yeah, so we only have an hour, right? <laughs> but
2: the, right the right answer is to like uh, to be like I'm from Atlanta.
0: What right. are you yeah. really asking? <laughs> yeah, so that's the thing. So my wife is one of those people that can say that she's from Columbia, South Carolina. Yeah, mm-hmm. she was born in Columbia, South Carolina. She went all the way through high school in Columbia, South Carolina. Her parents still live in Columbia, South Carolina. I was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. My parents lived between D.C. and Ghana and I've lived in every major region of the United States. Atlanta is actually now officially the city that I've lived in the longest, and so from Atlanta, is not that bad, but I'm from a lot of places. That's normally how I start, and then I say I was born in Milwaukee.
2: Yeah, but you wound up not being in Milwaukee for many years, right? Yeah, So,
0: and that's where it gets complicated. I barely remember living in Milwaukee. I gonna mean, have stories and stuff I can't remember from being a kid, but I left, so we were in Milwaukee proper until I was four. Then we moved to a suburb of Milwaukee, Brookfield, Wisconsin, which was a whole other thing for about three years. And then my dad moved on from being in, working with Deloitte and Touche, I think it was Touche Ross at that point, and became a partner with Deloitte and Touche in Washington, D.C. So we moved the family we moved the family to Northern Virginia. And I lived there for four years. And then we moved back to Ghana when I was 11. So I, I lived in Ghana from when I was 11 till I was 17. Did a year of boarding school in Connecticut, College of California, med school in Philadelphia, residency training in Atlanta, fellowship training in Houston, faculty so, position in so D.C. B-
2: bouncing around all over. But yeah. I, I yeah. got to ask, when you're 11, how yeah. did your mom and dad tell you, hey, that awesome suburban life with the shopping malls and everything? We're going to Ghana. Is that kind of like a we're going to Disney World moment? Like, what was what? How, how did that? So, so in a
0: way, but but you know, it wasn't like a one time drop. My parents are good about this. I mean, they've been kind of laying the crate for a while about okay, we're this is something we're going to do is move to Ghana, and so we, we're going to move back to Ghana at some point. We're going to move back to Ghana at some point. So there's always this thing just kind of hanging. Then my dad started spending a lot of time in Ghana on projects, and so he was constantly going to Ghana and coming back and bringing stuff back and. Then my older brother actually went first. So he was kind of like the test case. And he went to boarding school where my dad had gone to boarding school in his hometown. And then they started prepping us. I was like, okay, this summer you're going to move to Ghana. The one thing I'm sore about it, if I'm sore about any of it, is that I had started that year playing the clarinet and I'd switched to the French horn because I got bored with the clarinet. And they said they'd buy me a French horn and so that I could keep playing the French horn when I went to Ghana. And uh, they never bought me that French horn. As a matter of fact, I think we went to a music store and they saw how much a French horn actually cost. And they were like, we're just not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so they did, they did renege on that. But other than that, yeah, we. I mean, going into it, we were all in. I think they somehow conscripted my brother as kind of a propagandist because my older brother was writing letters. It was actual letters back then for those who are young listening. This was where you wrote on paper and would send something to your loved one as opposed to sending an email because we didn't have that then. But he would write actual physical letters that said, Hey, I'm having a great time at boarding school. This is so much fun. Daddy gave me some of my own money. I can buy stuff. I'm living, you know, not at home with all these guys and could do all this stuff. I'm like, man, Ghana sounds amazing. I'm looking forward to that. The transition was a little rougher than that initially before I grew to love it eventually.
2: I mean, I have to ask, and I've not been to Ghana. I've been on the continent a few times to different places at the top and the bottom. My Mom was born in Uganda and was a refugee, but and I've, I've met backpackers who have traveled or lived and worked in Ghana. But
0: right.
2: how do you contrast that experience? I mean, those are some pretty formative years. When I was yeah. eleven, I was discovering that Pearl Jam existed. <laughs> you know, like I was at Aladdin's Castle playing Street Fighter Two, and I'm not saying those things don't exist in Ghana. But what was that contrast like for you as an eleven year old?
0: Yeah, so it was interesting. The initial move was rough so i was big into video games that was like my whole thing then video games pretty much ruled my life from about well, what do
2: you have at home or were you an arcade guy or did you have something at
0: home we had a nintendo nintendo entertainment system so we had our nes and you know what was your whatever game? came out double dragons was one of the big one i made mean, the mario zelda one and two
2: i was a ninja in castlevania kind of guy <laughs>
0: interestingly i was never big on castlevania we just never had it cast, and... cast over like <laughs> <laughs> you know i don't know there was something about the gameplay the whatever it was like it, was, it had a little bit of rpg elements but not quite enough it wasn't as en- enrapturing as zelda i i don't know I hear, anyway i hear you so the problem so, so we had our nintendo and so that was fine there was a couple of key problems when we got to Ghana. one was that we took our Nintendo, we plugged it straight into the wall, and blew the AC adapter like within hours. Oh. Of the and so then it was just like life over, and oh. within seconds of showing up, so that was that was a problem. But then even when we got back up and running and got an AC adapter that worked, the games wouldn't work. So there's the whole it's like oh because you're in, you
1: in a different yeah region. Yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: so like the, the U.S. games were NTSC, and so they were actually like blockier and square. And like the, the European games were like roundish and like the PAL version. And so you couldn't trade. So I couldn't borrow a game from a friend. I couldn't trade a game from a friend. I couldn't buy a game there. A game would have to be bought on my dad's infrequent trips back to the U S and then brought to us. So it's like, so gaming comes to a halt and then obviously I've left my friends behind, I'm kind of discovering myself, who I am, my identity. And the first year I went to two different schools. I remember I was taking a test to get into the first school and the guy was just talking it up. There was this brand new school building and it was going to be amazing and it had all this stuff and whatever. And I was really excited and I got there and it was still kind of like a work site. Like, so the room was, was fine. The windows were open. There were no nets on them. They had louvered windows. I don't know if you're familiar with louvered windows I mean, they're kind of open or whatever, but no nets. So like, it's a fan going in. It's hot. I'm uncomfortable. At lunch, and I swear this is true, my parents are like, no, that didn't happen. This happened. We were helping move rocks from like one part of the grounds to another one to like help clear this area. So we lasted about a week there. It was also like 40 minutes from our house. It was a really long drive. And I was miserable. (laughs) Manual manual labor,
2: dude. (laughs) (laughs) I think Nelson Mandela did that on Robin's (laughs) Island.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, a little bit. Uh, Less cheerfully, probably. I mean, We were singing songs and stuff. But so after that week, we're like, we can't do this. So there was another school that was much closer to home. It was like literally like you know, blocks from our house. And I remember we pulled up into the, the, the parking thing and I never even went in, but we just looked at it and it was close to home and it was done. There was no construction going on. And I was like, yes, this one, we want to move to this school. Let's just move to this school. This will be better. My parents were like, all right, sure. And so they enrolled and it's just a, a nature of the climate and everything in Ghana a lot of buildings and whatever, they're not enclosed buildings with this hallway is connected to the next one and you walk inside. And once you're inside, you're inside the whole building, you know, and then they're kind of separate blocks of rooms. Like you might see it at a tropical hotel where every room opens out to the outside and there's no like inside hallway. And so when I looked at the front of this building, it was, I was seeing just the front block. And so in my head, I was like, oh, it's a building. It's like a, I'm going to walk inside. I'll be inside in this air conditioning, whatever. That was an illusion. So when I walked past, I then walked into this courtyard. I was like, it's the same thing. It's like this everywhere. Like this is not familiar. But that's where I went to school for my first year. It was a local school. And there was me, one other kid who also had lived in the U.S. for part of their growing up. And we became like tight. Like that was my guy that I felt kind of safe with. I mean, everybody else was... Ghanaian, born in Ghana, lived in Ghana their whole lives. And we're like, y'all are weird. And it was difficult because, again, I'm trying to understand who I am. And I'm this, this I see it, this American kid who has been marooned in Ghana. And I'm talking to people. I'm introducing myself. and I'm like, hey, who are you? I like, oh, I'm Aja Indo. And they're like, Aja? No, that's not your name. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it is. I know my name, Aja. Aja, I'm Aja Indo. No, your name is Aja. I was like, what are you talking about? First of all, I don't necessarily hear the difference of what you're saying, but I'm telling them my name is Aja. I'm an American who now lives here. Went on for a long time until I started to listen to my parents and realized that they had been saying my name differently my entire life than I had been saying my name my entire life and actually realized that they were right about several things. I was am Ghanaian. And my parents had always raised me to know that I was Ghanaian, but I had never really internalized I think that being Ghanaian as a cultural thing actually meant a tie to this whole other country that I had never visited until that time
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and I don't think that actually even really became part of my identity even through that whole year because I still was like apart from the rest of the class it was me this other guy and then there was the rest of the class and I did well academically but that year is kind of what's the what's the other guy
2: Ghanaian-American? Same thing,
0: same yeah, thing. Yeah. Gotcha, also yeah. also Ghanaian-American. For whatever reason, his parents had, had decided to, to bring in to, to Ghana as well. But then the next year, my younger brother and I then went to the school that my little sister had gotten into, Ghana International School. So it was a very difficult school to get into. My parents had somehow worked it because my sister was five, I think, when we moved to Ghana. And so she kind of came right in on the ground floor. And they were able to get her in as a, it, there was like different levels. It was like short-term expatriate, long-term expatriate, and like local Ghanaian, which all had different school fees. The highest school fees were for a short-term expatriate, meaning non-Ghanaian, came from abroad. You now is was living in Ghana for a short period of time. They need to throw their kids into school. They'd go to GIS. But my, my sister, I think, I think she was either the long-term expatriate or the, the Ghanaian, however was, she was cheaper. And so my parents were like, okay, fine, she can go there. My older brother, like I said, was at the boarding school, which actually was not a phenomenal place. It was kind of like torture, but he survived there for several years. So he was gone. And then it was me and my little brother who now got pulled from the local Ghanaian school in our neighborhood to the international school. And in the international school, that actually started to feel like home and probably felt more like home than any educational experience I'd ever had. Because there were a lot of people who were very, very similar to me. They had either grown up partially in the United States or- Some, some form of think, transplant, right. Yeah, in the UK, other parts of the world. I mean, there were Indians whose families now lived in Ghana, people from various embassies who now lived in Ghana. And so everybody kind of came from different places. And I can move between the different groups. I fit in with the Ghanaians from the UK and the US, etc. The local Ghanaians who were there knew Ghanaians who had lived in other places, so it wasn't a foreign concept to them that there might be a Ghanaian with an American accent. And so the next five years living in Ghana was, was actually really great. I then started to get into sports. I kind of moved beyond video games a little bit. It, it was funny. Everybody played soccer, well, football, obviously, very well. I did not. <laughs> I thought that I was okay until I moved to Ghana. And so I actually became the goalkeeper because nobody wanted to pay goalie.
2: They're just like stand in the way, take (laughs) the blame when it doesn't work out. Exactly,
0: exactly, exactly. And then they would just yell at me for not being a very good goalie. Like, why didn't you punch the ball? I'm like, I didn't know you could punch the ball. I thought you tried to catch it. But basketball was another story. So basketball was just rising in popularity in Ghana. More courts popping up in various places. And I was amazing at basketball as compared to everybody else. So I very quickly became captain of the basketball team. So then that became part of my identity as well. Along with kind of being smart kid, good at math, which had always been part of my baseline. Nice. I so want to you- ask another question about
2: being a kid, and it's kind of a two parter. Growing up in America and what sounds like a lot of suburbs, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. When did you realize? And, and I want to tie this to Ghana in a second, but like, when did you realize? Oh, I'm black and I'm different. Because like for me, I always. Even though we ate Indian food at home and my parents played loud Indian music on the weekends, I kind of had the self-identity and the burbs of a a white kid until something happened and someone would call me out as being different. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. It's difficult to pinpoint only because I now have reflections that change it. But I do believe it happened when we were in Brookfield. So this is around when I'm four, five, going into kindergarten. So five, five years old going into kindergarten. My older brother's is probably a little bit more jarring. My older brother went to the elementary school we went to in Brookfield Hillside Elementary. And I I can't verify this anywhere, but I'm pretty sure we were the first black children to ever go to that school. So my older brother was the first, and I followed him. And pretty soon into my older brother's time there, the kids were teasing him, calling him Chocolate Factory and, and a bunch of stuff. And my mom, being my mom, went to the school and, and stormed right in, spoke to the principal and said this would not be acceptable and went to the teacher and, and actually went to the kids and was like, hey, how would you like it if he started calling you Vanilla Factory and whatever else? Like, stop it. Like, You're not going to tease my son that way.
1: I like your mom, by the way, for the record. She's, she's <laughs> yeah. a rock
0: star. Yeah, she's, she's got a lot, of, a lot of qualities to be admired, which we can go into as far as her mom check, checklist record. She, she, she's done quite a bit. <laughs> while you know, working a full-time job for most of my, my childhood as well. So in any case, by the time I got there, there, there was none of that. I didn't get any of that. I cannot recall particularly being teased for my skin color during my time there. Quite the contrary, actually, we were kind of mini-celebrities. Like, everybody knew us. As the black kids. Hey, yes. Well, I didn't necessarily know that they knew me because I was a black kid. But, like, everybody could see and know who I was. and like, hey, how's it going? What I realized in retrospect, there were, there were a couple of things that stood out. One, I would come to school sometimes and learn about a birthday party that had happened. People that I would have considered to be my you know, kind of closer group of friends. Conversely, I remember one birthday party in particular that we had at our house where a classmate of mine drove up, dropped off their gifts and left. And I don't know, for all I know, they had a soccer game that day. Yeah,
2: so. yeah, yeah. But you never know.
0: You never know. It's the sort of thing that you you think about it, in retrospect, it was like, you know, I thought I was a pretty friendly kid and I invited all these kids to my birthday party. But it was, again, a not infrequent thing. I remember very vividly one time just going in the classroom and it was like, "Such such a birthday and talking about the party. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize it was your birthday. It's like, oh, yeah. And again, maybe I was a jerk. <laughs> oh, no. And just not fun to be around. But those are the sorts of things you see. I mean,
2: you about. had bad taste in video games. so We all know that already.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> clearly. Clearly. <laughs> well, we didn't have the NES then. So my poor taste had not quite developed. In Northern Virginia, it was a little bit more acute, so I definitely knew I was a black kid. That, you know, There were a couple other black kids in my class, and I was in one elementary school initially and then moved to a completely different elementary school after you know, kind of the gifted thing. So it was one of the districts where the gifted schools were concentrated, so I moved to the gifted school, and then I was definitely the only black kid in the gifted class. And that brings certain things with it. I remember... One thing that would totally have gone viral today, but when we were learning about slavery and Confederate history as one does and one forces.
2: Yeah, great. remember, I don't know if you had this, but growing up in Alabama, it yeah. was called MLK Robert E. Lee Day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I didn't know that was I, not a thing till I wow. moved to the Midwest.
0: So interesting. I don't think they had that in Northern Virginia. They were a little bit more genteel <laughs> with their things. However, they still were very pro Virginia. And I remember very vividly, and I and I'm sure if you were to contact the staff at this elementary school, they would swear that this never happened. But I swear that it did. We had a debate about slavery, like it was like we were talking about secession, the debate and whatever. And I was put on the side of the South, and we were debating, and you know, I had to make the case. Wait, how many
2: other How many other black kids were in this classroom?
0: Were any? There were no others. It was just me. okay. That's right. That's right. Okay, so yeah, just me. put the black kid
2: on the side of the South.
0: Correct. Which may have been an attempt to be like, well, let's Bay, not Bay, make the black kid be on the union side so he doesn't have to, to justify his humanity. But I won. <laughs> Come on. What, what were I your won. arguments? I'm not entirely certain. Actually, I, you know, I,
2: I don't do... want to get you in trouble. Actually, I don't want to potentially get you in yeah, trouble. Yeah, yeah. yeah
0: there's, there's really not a, a lot of good things. But you know, you can justify anything.
2: Well, let, let me ask a contrasting question, Ija. Sure. These are the experiences of a black boy in a majority white society. Yeah, and then at eleven, you guys go back to the continent, and all of a sudden, you're one of many black kids. And I was talking to I was talking to an executive, a black executive at a multinational firm based in Switzerland, and she's taken her teen boys over to Europe, and she's and again, Europe very different from Africa, but she's like the black American experience. Her kids aren't exposed to. It's almost like getting an oxygen mask on. And so I guess the question, as a little boy who's Literally just had to debate for the side of the South or all these microaggressions that you may or may not have sensed as a kid. And all of a sudden, your minority status is being an American, but you're surrounded by black people. I'm really trying to tease out what was that different perception of self as a kid going from being the only black kid to being just another black kid?
0: So until I got to GIS, I wasn't just another black kid. So othering is othering. And oh, that's good. In the first school, I was othered as an American and as someone who was trying to cling to my Americanism and not not go into the group because I understood myself as an American. And so I did not understand myself as part of their group. And they also sensed this and othered me in that way. And so I was a minority in that sense as well. I talked different. There was a class in one of the local languages. Ghana. I didn't speak Ghana or any of the other local languages so they could talk around me and often did. And I was also lighter skinned. In, in the U.S., I would, I'm not typically considered light skinned in most groups. In Ghana, I'm definitively light skinned. My grandfather is French and even my mom's mom has some uh, Dutch lineage, uh, Scottish lineage as well. And my mom's very fair. And so I wasn't quite in... You know, the, the term that was used was half-caste. And like that's, you know, someone who was a light-skinned person, it was like half.
2: Is that kind of like being colored in South Africa? So it's... It of, is. Yeah yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And so, and there's all sorts of terms and things that, that, that people call people who are lighter and different.
2: Educate us. Like what?
0: So abroni is actually the term that's used most commonly by the Ashantis, which actually... <laughs> To my understanding, is it's really kind of like white vulture is, is what it is. So it's, it's not like a it's not an endearing term. Let's just say that. So my mom again, who's who's quite fair. She actually she takes quite a bit of joy sometimes in catching people unawares who don't know who she is, who might talk about her behind her back in Ghana, and she'll blast them in Fanti, <laughs> in the her, native her, language. Yes, <laughs> and just completely blow them away. In any case, so I'll like is your statement. mom.
1: <laughs> yeah, right. I want to get <laughs> There's her on a the show. About
0: it, I have to say. She's had TV shows and stuff like that, and Tom Cruise shows, whatever. She's a personality. It's amazing. Though so she's quite private. In any case, that first year, I was still not in the group, the bigger group. When I got to GIS, that was like a moment for reinvention. And it was just this complete blank slate. So even in the GT school, I was a black kid. And the only additional, I think, characteristic you could add to me was I was good at math. I won the math Olympiad in, in fifth grade. And so I was a black kid. And I also wanted to be smarter than everybody else. And I knew I had to represent that was something that my parents had always, This is. I don't know if this is always the case with African immigrant families, but my dad, his story is also quite unique. And I think that having gone to college in the United States, as he did adopted many of the same sayings and and sorts of things that black Americans had. So he would tell us we have to be twice as good to get half as far that we would have to work harder than our colleagues in order to get the same things. And so we worked hard. And my parents also told us that we were very bright. I know that's the, not what you're supposed to do to kids these days, I guess, <laughs> but they, they told us that we were super smart objectively and should do better than the other children. And so that was who well, I was. This is my kid and I was smart. And then I got to Ghana. I went to Ghana international school and I wasn't other. I wasn't the American kid. There were other American Ghanaian American children. There were people that were lighter than me. There were people that were darker than me. People that lived in the UK. Other people that were smart who are also black. So it was like, well, I could be whoever I want. Like I could actually be whatever set of characteristics or things that I do altogether. And it was, it was really—I don't know if there was a particular epiphany moment, but it was just like, oh, all right. So yeah, I'll be captain of the basketball team. That'll be part of it. And I'll continue to be good at math because that's, that's also my thing. I could do leadership positions you know, I could run for stuff and, okay, this is kind of cool. I could do theater Do you like it. You know, I did that for, for a couple semesters and it was very freeing, quite honestly, to just the things that I was were about me. And that was the, the first environment where I felt that way.
3: That's great.
1: And so you have become a doctor, just like your mother predicted, or that your mother told you your your doctor predicted you would. Mm-hmm,
0: <laughs> exactly, exactly.
1: And you wrote this amazing article in Medscape. It's kind
2: of fire. I'm sorry.
1: It's 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 fire. <laughs> that's that's the exact word that actually we were using with each other when we first read it. I would love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about that article and some of the key points that you brought up in that ar- article about what it's like to be black and being a doctor today?
0: Yeah, so this is a particular moment, a very interesting moment that we're in. And in very similar to that, so Nzinga actually had a discussion with, with Usha McFarling, who wrote that Medscape article. And so she has a similar piece that she she put together that was very powerful. And so I had an interview. So I actually wrote it. I edited it. It was an interview, and she wrote it into a, a, a piece better than I can. Writing is something I'm working on. It's not, I would call it one of my particular talents. We talked for like a, an hour and a half at a time where I have started to speak more publicly about being black and my experience being black, which probably sounds like a weird thing because I've been black my entire life in a bunch of different circumstances, but I don't talk about it a lot or didn't talk about it a lot. Why not can do it? So because it is fraught. And there are penalties that society holds for Black people who talk about or focus on being Black. And You know, it's funny, I
2: was reading, no, I'm constantly plowing through Obama's current book, and I've read his past ones. Mm-hmm. But he talks about that on the campaign trail. You can't talk about that. His advisors were like, you can't play that card right. because you will be pigeonholed immediately. Is it something like that?
0: Oh, absolutely. You play it sparingly, if at all. I mean, you kind of want people to, in certain spaces, you're kind of taught to make them forget. And I've developed a certain talent for that, right? And have moved into leadership. And that's the only way you move into leadership spaces that I've been fortunate to move into. I became the first Black chair of the Young Neurosurgeons Committee. I didn't do it going around saying like, hey man, I'm the Black neurosurgeon here, but I want to lead. No, I, I did it by doing the things that everybody else does to keep my head down and specifically not bringing up black things. So in the wake of George Floyd, medicine, all industry, the United States has been talking a lot more about race. And it just kind of felt like it was time to start talking. And for a few reasons, honestly, I don't know, maybe I'm a bit of a coward. I could have talked about race earlier and it might've hurt me a little bit, but I I might've done okay. But In some ways, it became a lot safer because other people were already doing it, and I knew it could hurt me. As an undergrad student, I was certainly part of a lot of black organizations, and and I was outspoken, and I I did say things, but I knew what I needed to do to get to medical school, and I got there. So I knew I was going to make the next step. In medical school, again, I I did the things that I needed to do to to get to the next step to get into residency. In residency, in particular, I did not say a lot about race. Neurosurgery is a very conservative field. It is a very white field. Very male as well, and older. It's, it's very slow to change. There's not a lot of neurosurgeons made every year, so the, the demographics are going to stay the same for a very long time. And so, there's not a lot of young Black people running around talking about how, how Black they are and, and what their experience is like and how it's it's different from everyone else. Well, what's
2: what's interesting is one thing you say in the article and I'm going to misquote this, but it's so dope. (laughs) Science is my jazz. (laughs) Can you talk to that a little bit more? Because maybe it's a lot of black kids don't make it that far all the way up through neurosurgery residencies or have the aspiration. But I feel like there's a lot of self... I got to watch what I say here. But is there self-selection out? Well, I can't be one because it's an old white man's field. But why not? Because you pushed, you wanted to do it. You were nerding out about the idea of being a neurosurgeon.
0: So my mom will continue to feature heavily in this as both my parents should. And you could do a whole podcast where all I talk about is my dad too. But <laughs> one of the things that my parents constantly said, my mom constantly said was you can be anything that you want to be when you grow up, anything you want to be, whatever you want to be, you can do it. No question. You, you can do it. We just want you to be excellent. And I believed her with one exception. I thought she was lying about me being president. I knew that was not true even though it was true, apparently, <laughs> but right. but I knew that was not true. Cause I was a black man. I, I knew that as a child knew it. So in any case, so that, that kind of, I knew that I was powerful, that I had a, a smart mind and all the, the experiences. I knew my parents were going to break down whatever wall they needed to, to give me that opportunities I needed to, to do what I needed to do to get where I needed to get. I had always been confident that I would uh, get where I would be. It, it wasn't until I was older, I think, that, that I realized that other people didn't necessarily think that way, and that some people think that they can't be what they would want to be. It's a little bit mind-blowing when you, you run into people and they, they say, and people say this to me all the time, well, it's, like, oh, it's like, oh, I'm a neurosurgeon. It's like, oh, my God, I couldn't do that. I'm like, yeah, you could. It's like, it's really, it's not that, it's, it's not that deep. What I tell people is I know a lot of neurosurgeons, and some of them are not very impressive. <laughs> <It's> so... <laughs> That's really scary. <laughs> that's scary to hear. <laughs> no, I, I say it to my colleagues, but but no, but but they can do the job, right? And that's the point. Is there there are excellent neurosurgeons. I mean, world-renowned neurosurgeons who are not very impressive. Got it. Not good people. Mean-spirited. Ah, got you.
2: Kind of like Benedict Cumberbach in the beginning of Doctor Strange. Sorry.
0: <laughs> there you go. That's an excellent. Yes. Yes. Very I mean, well, that's. Well. It, but isn't that like uh, the stereotype a lot individual? It. Well, so, but it doesn't have to be. When I was in medical school, a lot of people would be like, well, why are you going to neurosurgery? You're, such, you're so nice. <laughs> there could be a nice neurosurgeon. <laughs> yes, I'm good at being nice. I could also be good at the neurosurgery part. <laughs> now, the specialty has cultivated this thing of this mystique and, you know, the it's not brain surgery thing, which if you haven't, you have to search the it's not brain surgery video. Have you seen that? No. No, everybody to put it in the show, show notes. yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Everyone listening to this podcast, just Google, it's not brain surgery on YouTube. There's a British sketch that comes out, which is hilarious. And it's circulated amongst the neurosurgeons. We all know it, but you should find it. (laughs) Nevertheless, we've certainly cultivated this mystique and restricted our numbers so that people would generally believe that they could not be neurosurgeons, right? And even when we talk amongst ourselves and we're doing residency applications and that sort of thing, we'll look and we'll say, well, do they have what it takes and whatever to be a neurosurgeon? I'm like, what, man? These kids... Which, and this is true, there's like an arms race for applications now. So, I mean, there are kids that apply that have more publications than I do as a medical student. Some of them are not very good, but but they, but still, like, as far as the academic output, raw academic output, I mean, these kids are phenomenal. And we're, like, picking and choosing and whatever. And the point I, I'm often making these days is we can literally train any of any of these kids could be a neurosurgeon. Every last one of them could be. A couple hundred of them won't be because there's just not enough slots. But we get to pick. We literally get to pick who decides who gets to be a neurosurgeon. Like we have that power. We don't have to use any particular metric to pick these people. Cuz and we I promise you, I can train any of those people to be a neurosurgeon that wants to be. In the article
1: you you quote people that have said to you things like if systemic racism exists then how did you get so far? What's your response to that?
0: So, it's a little bit a little bit of chest thumping, which is what most neurosurgeons will do in that scenario is, is that, again, I'm exceptional. And part of that I do believe. I, I do think that I was, whether it's because I was in Montessori school that my mom you know, looked into and, and had us as a kid and that helped shape my brain and whatever. My IQ was high. Things come naturally. I was the kid that didn't show up to lecture all semester and would just show up and take the test and do just fine. That's always been who I was. So, so yeah, so I was able to succeed in spite of by being whatever barriers by being just exceptional i had to be exceptional to overcome the barriers that's part of it and part of it is i have a lot of other privileges my dad was a partner for deloitte and touche the gt program that i went to in elementary school was a phenomenal elementary school the private school that i went to in ghana was quite expensive i did a year at loomis chafee which is one of the private schools in new england and you know that that cost a lot of money I was able to go to Stanford and, and apply to Stanford knowing that, that I would have no problems paying for that education. Same thing when I went to the University of Pennsylvania. Actually, I got a lot of financial aid at University of Pennsylvania. I got more aid at the University of Michigan, which is a fine institution. I have a lot of great friends who ended up going there, and, and I had a lo- lot of soul searching going back and forth. But University of Michigan was going to pay for my housing and everything. And I got to pick Penn strictly because I like the curriculum better without any thought at all to the cost of the education. I mean, that is a huge luxury. So I, I had a lot of things in my corner that pushed me and propelled me past the average person who necessarily wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And I've still taken my lumps. We were just on a call yesterday talking diversity and when and broke into small groups and talking about microaggressions and honestly didn't really want to participate because I just had another experience that was a little bit disheartening earlier that day, but was participating. And there are things that have happened over the course of my career that haven't stopped me, but they hurt me. Yeah. And I could be even further if it wasn't for those things. They had tangible, real impacts on my career and my standing to where I am today. And it's hard to see that because I'm doing fine.
2: Well, because it seems like something you said, it doesn't stop me because you keep moving. And so similar to that girl who might have had soccer practice at your birthday party, right? You move on, you look back and you can reflect on it, right? But you're not going to let it stop you.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean,
0: it's one of the things like the, when people say, one of the things Tony Morrison said that the, one of the impacts of racism is distraction. It's distracting. The time I spend worrying about and responding to racism is time I should be writing papers on brain tumor. It's time I should be doing the jazz part that you, you alluded to earlier. Yeah. yeah, I should be sitting and freely reflecting and thinking about the world. I had a grant due last summer on a Friday, on the Wednesday. This is actually hilarious. The NIDS and a lot of other institutions, they had this blackout. The whole idea was like that black people would not be doing work that day and instead so we would talk about race and I think it was very well-meaning but I had a grant due on Friday <laughs> so I needed to submit the grant for my career yeah. yeah but everybody needed to talk about race and they needed me because why because there were no other black people yeah so I got pulled into this panel for two hours and participated because I had to and so I submitted my grant late <laughs> literally like a, by like a few minutes
1: did you get it the grant
0: I did not get the grant. I did not get the grant because it was, I did not not get the grant because it was late. I actually wrote them a letter and said, no joke, and I do not recommend those who want to apply for NIH grants to necessarily do this in the future, but I did it. I wrote a letter and I said, George Floyd was literally just murdered and I have lost several days in the past two weeks dealing with the aftermath. And I ended up submitting this a couple hours late, but it would have easily been on time if if I had had the time to continue to work. And they have the discretion as to whether to allow it to be continue to be considered, and they, they did. It's a similar,
2: nowhere near the same level. But when the Capitol riots happened, the insurrection, it just destroyed me. It destroyed my sense of safety. It destroyed my sense of productivity. And it's this opportunity cost. I mean, the last president, the amount of sheer, call it opportunity loss, the amount of headspace and emotional space you spend thinking about the things that are being said and done. It's psychological safety for sure, but it's, these are fucking distractions per Toni Morrison. I'm sure yeah. she dropped the F-bomb in her original <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: But there are distractions you can't avoid. It's like this car crash that you have to watch, that you have to acknowledge, that you have to internalize, but then Indeed. you got to keep moving.
0: This is not a car crash on the side of the road. This is the, this is the crash in front of you. Yeah. That's fair. That's right.
1: fair. Right. You're not driving
0: by it. It's... Yes, you swirl up, around it. right in
1: front of you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And being someone who is in a position of power and privilege, as you said yourself, it's almost, it's irresponsible to not participate, right? So you've done some amazing things though. I mean, you're leading the organization Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform, which I find to be really amazing too. I feel like you're doing such great things there. What what you inspired,
2: clearly have plenty of time. Yeah. And then, you know, grant applications,
1: a couple hours late, but all these other things you're you're up to. What inspired that? And I mean, I'm pretty sure I know, but would love to hear from you why you started that and, and yeah.
0: the need for it. So similarly, you go back to my parents. One of the, the things I was always told is too much is given, much is expected, right? Much is required. And literally, so this is 2014, I mean, You can go back as far as 2013, Trayvon Martin, though that wasn't on film, but but you have Eric Garner, and John Crawford, and Tamir Rice, and Michael Brown, and, and just all these unarmed black men are, are getting killed at the hand of the police. And Trayvon Martin wasn't killed at the hands of the police, but it, it kind of felt that way too. And so the question was why, right? And around that same time, I'd, I'd gone back. For a reunion at Stanford. Michelle Alexander won an award from the Alumni Association. All these students were talking about how life changing her book than Jim Crow was. So I read the book myself and really opened my eyes to the whole problem of of criminal justice reform, which is something that I thought about and people had talked about, but really wasn't foremost in my consciousness, my socioeconomic status, the things that I was dealing with. It wasn't really foremost in my mind. But you know, something really clicked with me with that it was simply that the thing that tied together all of these tragic events was assumed criminality, in my head anyway, that there was something about black people to police officer, person in the public, to where they could objectify them, dehumanize them because they were likely to be a criminal. and Why? Because of mass incarceration. And so it became very crystal clear to me that, that criminal justice reform was the civil rights issue of our time, at least in the United States. And so the question, well, okay, well, what should we do about that? So we can put on our white coats and we can go to a rally that's being done by Black Lives Matter, you know, loosely affiliated group or other people every time someone gets killed. Or we could try and find the specific things that physicians do and care about and are experts at where we could have an impact. Um, yeah,
2: on so I, I mean, that's my question. Where do justice and medicine interact?
0: Well, I mean, it's every time you see a patient, I mean, it's all the time. The social determinants of health, it's something it's, it's becoming more and more talked about, but it plays into everything. It plays into who gets referred when for different diseases, which hospitals are seen at first, whether they're seen by a specialist, even within neurosurgery, there, there are you know, subspecialties. Like I'm a brain tumor surgeon, a neurosurgical oncologist so within neurosurgeons, mostly doing spine. I take out almost exclusively brain tumors. And so... But if you go to the county hospital, you might just see the general neurosurgeon. I see. It, it's good. The,
2: are you implying, and I'm truly trying to understand this, that black patients are treated differently in the system?
0: No question. No yeah, okay. question. Uh, top top to bottom, in every little thing, and it comes out in the data. It's not explicitly said in the data, but so if there are people who study health spares, or maybe they, they don't study it primarily, but they'll publish studies on it, and they will say there's a disparity in the survival of cancer for black people. And if you search through the paper, they don't say racism one time. And there's no biological basis, though, for yeah, why. So, but it's how, it's, it's
2: clearly how the, they are being navigated through the system or the process.
0: Correct. Correct. So justice should be in the fiber of everything that we do in medicine. It, it isn't. It should be. But physicians are leaders. Physicians are seen to be leaders. People respect the physicians in their communities. They listen to them. And so we should be talking about things that that we have an impact on. If we treat, as Nzinga does, substance abuse disorders, we have to tell the public that substance abuse disorders are a disease, not about someone's criminality. We have to make that explicit. And they need to hear that from a physician because we're the ones that are doing that treating. We need to talk about why you can't treat a 13-year-old person who has done something they shouldn't have done the same way you would treat an adult because their brain is not the same and hasn't formed the same. And we need physicians to say that. So it was very clear that there was to me anyway, that there was a role that physicians needed to play. And I literally Googled and searched because I was sure that there were physicians who were already doing it and there weren't. And I didn't want to do it in a sense. Like I, I've got too many things on my plate and I got to feed my family too. We're doing just fine, but I got to get promoted. I got to publish papers. I need to get grants. But I can also spend several hours every week after the kids have gone to sleep on phone calls and putting together meetings and and working on seminars to educate people on these issues because no one else is doing it. And I know I can. So I have the knowledge that it's something that needs to be done. I know I have the ability to do it. So I, I have to do it.
2: It's funny the way you say that because I've said this and a few other places, but I met this investor, a VC. And he was like, I invest in two kinds of companies, or I I see two kinds of companies come across my table, the kind where the people are just doing it, because it's kind of cool to do it, that app that does that thing, that's so much fun, right? And the ones who can't live in a world where that thing doesn't exist. And he says, I invest in those ones, right? And it kind of sounds like that's the nature of this work. It's not your day job, to be clear, you're not founding Mm -hmm. a company, Uh, You have founded or you're very active in this movement because it has to be done.
0: That's 100% right. And I'm very fortunate because I have friends and colleagues like Dr. Harrison who are experts and day job experts in this field who I can assemble and call upon for this. And we're always looking for more. So if you're a physician or an ally or someone interested in criminal justice, please find us at Physicians for Criminal Justice Reform. But yeah, I'm, I'm compelled to do it. 'Cause I, I have to.
1: What is something you would tell your younger self? You've you've come a long, long way. And when you reflect back on who you were before, what's advice that you would give to your younger self?
0: Oh gosh. Depending on the age of one, I would say that we do end up marrying Kelly so he can relax about that. That's my wife, Kelly, <laughs> briefly in college and there was a whole thing of it not working out and then eventually <laughs> you could have you could have shortcutted stuff yeah 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 i could been was like, hey man the whole thing about trying to get to the senior formal don't bum out about that that's fine don't worry about it like just <laughs> go 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 to the senior formal and have fun just
2: have a good i job. love how direct the advice is because everywhere we went in this conversation i was like there's gonna be this epic life-changing feedback like no you found the girl early.
1: Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 Don't yeah. worry just,
0: about it, just dude. Just chill out. <laughs> so so, so I, would t- I would tell them that. And it's interesting. We're a lot of different crossroads. I think a lot of them have worked out. So I'd probably just tell them, you know what? Hey, it's actually going okay. Whatever you're dealing with right now, it's going all right. This challenge that you're seeing right now, that seems like a crisis of your future existence, do what you need to do right now, but it will be fine. And you're gonna come come out of it okay. I think that would be most of most of my advice and in different ways and different at different times. Hey, you actually did get into medical school. Keep studying. Yeah. For that MCAT. I know that pre med advisor said that it's a long shot, but it's believe it or not, it's gonna work out. So
2: we've covered a lot of territory in a lot of different places of your life. And I feel like we could keep going for another hour or so, but we're almost out of time. So what do you think, Sharon? You think he's ready for speedrun?
1: I think he's ready.
2: Are you ready, my friend?
1: Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) You're supposed to say I'm always ready.
0: (laughs) No, I'm prepared for things and there are things I'm not prepared for, but I'm always game. I take everything as a competition. That's the thing. So I'm I'm trying to figure out how how to to win this.
2: Perfect. (laughs) There
0: is no winning speed round.
1: (laughs) Mm. Mm -mm. What's one thing about you that no one expects? No one expects...
2: Gosh, just depends on, on Hey, hey, man! It's not. This is clear. not how you win
0: speed round. No, I'm not. See, I'm losing. I'm already losing speed round. <laughs> I think people are surprised that I'm friendly. Actually. What? what? Yeah. Well, so people are intimidated sometimes by the whole neurosurgeon thing. Again, it's like it's a, the, the stereotype and whatever. And I'm just like, no, hey, yeah, let's talk. Yeah. Okay. You're too nice. Come on. <laughs> I would have gone the other way if they get to know me. Well, yeah. I guess that's why I'm saying situational because then there are other people that are like, whoa, hey, hey, man, I didn't know that you, that you got down like that. Like, no, it's, it's calm down. <laughs> like, if I really get into something.
2: Gotcha. What's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to?
0: There's several. One, actually, there's a book that, and this is maybe more of my mom's little program. It was Doctors by Eric Siegel. It's a book that I read as a kid. It's two young children who end up becoming positions over the course of their lives. It's, it's a whole long thing. They're not black. They're just kids from, from a, a little neighborhood. The, one of them was Hispanic American. And just the challenges they go through, the desire of wanting to succeed and, and tribulations. And I read that book probably three, four times.
1: What is your favorite mom dish?
0: That's jollof rice. That's, that's no question. <laughs> and jollof rice to any of the Nigerians listening, the Sierra Leoneans or any others if you don't know that. You, just, you just threw down, I think. They expected it. They didn't. If they're, <laughs> listening, if they're listening, they heard laugh. like, I know what he's going to say. Yes, carne and is the best. It is true. My mom specifically outclasses all others.
2: Nice. What is your least favorite food?
0: Well, I'm allergic to allergic allergic some people would say it's not a real allergy but i'm allergic to shrimp and, and lobster so anything that involves those which the one shout take a moment again i love my mom very much but they would sometimes order the combination fried rice forgetting that i was there and so i wouldn't get to have fried rice sometimes as a kid not not a lot not a lot we're talking like 10 percent of the time but i remember those times i'm a middle child yeah but come on.
2: that, that <laughs> one's technical so i want you to give me the thing you've got veto rights on like you would be like yeah
0: no, i'm not eating it yeah so yeah probably steamed eggplant the texture thing. Does anybody steamed, like that? <laughs> yeah. I don't know why anyone would do that, but I, they serve it at the physician's cafeteria, which the food is otherwise very good, but sometimes they're steamed eggplant and I want to have a vegetable and I'm just like, I, it's a bridge too far.
1: No. Yeah. The gooiness of that. Not cool. Yeah. No. Not why? Good. Why would you do that?
0: <laughs> who
1: is someone that you would want to interview on a podcast?
0: My dad, who we haven't spoken to. I've spoken about a lot. But there's, there's a lot to his story that I think that my siblings and I need to do a better job preserving. Because I think that I mean, we would learn a lot from it. But I think a lot of people would learn a lot from everything that he's done and, and been through.
1: That sounds like a great family project to do.
0: I'll get on it you right know, after find, the yeah, other 100 things. Just find another 45 <laughs> minutes somewhere. I,
2: I actually like. want to give you... So my sister, <laughs> who's probably listening... For Christmas a couple of years ago, she bought my dad. I can't remember the name of the service, but it basically, you pick the questions and it emails your loved one, the questions, and they have to write a response to it. Right. And it's like, you can ask anything. What was your first job? The things you want to know about your dad that right. he never brings up. And my dad's response, to, and I get a little email alert every time he responds to one because they send mm-hmm. the weekly prompts about it. And- <laughs> His responses are the most direct. Like we're clearly <laughs> trying to get a story,
0: and it was like,
2: "What was your first toy?" When I was in India, we couldn't afford toys.
0: You like <laughs> had too
2: many toys, and blah 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 blah. <laughs> and so yeah. I find like the Silicon Valley guy who created the service clearly doesn't have Indian parents,
1: right? Exactly. Right,
0: right. Yes. No. My dad's might be similar. One of his favorite sayings to say to us as we were growing up, if we were to ask for something, it would be, "Hey, Ja." Do you know how many bowls of wache, which is one of the staple staple foods like it's rice and beans, that you could buy with X whatever number, right. number of dollars? <laughs> we were not allowed to get soda when we went out for pizza.
1: Oh, you know, us like too. That. Yeah, we were never.
0: Yeah, that was again. a Friday thing. We couldn't get it at the place, but we had a twelve pack of Coke that was for Fridays. At home, yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So the only time we got soda, we're so off on a tangent here, but this is only time we could get soda is they had like dinner parties with the other Indian families every other weekend. Yeah. And you could have soda there, but the other aunties made the food so damn spicy that you drank the soda, <laughs> but it was like <laughs> and torturing your mouth while you're drinking yeah.
0: it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Negative reinforcement. Yeah.
2: <laughs> what does being a modern minority mean for you? Today,
0: it means being vocal about being a minority, even though that take some risk. In, in this new post George Floyd world, I just feel like I have to do that part, which is something I, I didn't necessarily do. Before. That's pretty That's righteous.
2: Yeah. And I mean that in the sense of it's the work that has to be done mm-hmm. despite everything else going on. We've all got a lot of stuff going on. And if you can do it, I think the rest of us can as well. Was I just, cool? Yeah. Thanks so much for joining, man. This has been a really fun.
1: You are Thank an you. inspiration. You really are.
0: Yeah, I, I don't feel that way. I just feel like I'm doing what I was supposed to do. We'll keep doing it, man. Appreciate it.
2: And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five star rating on your favorite podcasting platform.
1: Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three.
2: Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom at modmypod.com.
1: You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's
2: it for now. I've been Ramon Segel.
1: And I'm still Sharon Lee-Tony.
2: Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
1: We'll talk to you soon.